You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. I'm Michael Duffy, opinions editor-at-large at The Washington Post, and thank you for joining us. 2022 is the 50th anniversary of Watergate, uh, the break-in that led to the downfall of the 37th president, Richard Nixon. In time since, Mr. Nixon has emerged as a more complex, if not always more admired president than he was at the time of his resignation in 1974. Our guest this morning is Dwight Chapin, a personal aide in many capacities to Mr. Nixon for more than a decade. Mr. Chapin worked with and watched Mr. Nixon closely in those years and joins us today to talk about that chapter in his life. He is the author of a new book, The President's Man, Memoirs, of Nixon's trusted aide. Good morning, Mr. Chapin, and thank you for joining us. Hi, good morning, uh, Michael. Nice to be with you. Uh, Mr. Chapin, you're uh, 80 or 81, I believe. Watergate is 50 years uh, behind us, and I, I, I want to start by asking you if you, if you might tell us, um, why did you write this book now so many years later? I, I wrote this book now because for two or three different reasons. One, um, I, I felt that I had a, a responsibility to history and to, uh, the, to chronicle the incredible uh, era that I was uh, privileged to witness. That was number one. Number two, I, I believe uh, that there are many attributes about President Nixon and the man, and I knew him very well, and I feel that he has, over through history, been uh, misunderstood. And I wanted to put on the record uh, the man, uh, everything about the man that I knew. And then, lastly, uh, I have grandchildren, and hopefully, eventually, great grandchildren, and I wanted them to know what had happened to their great grandfather, or grandfather, uh, when he. Uh, served the president. Uh, you grew up in Kansas and went to uh, the university. I'm sorry. No, I, I did grow up in Kansas. I'm proud of that. Yes. And and then went to the University of Southern California, where you really got your start in politics. Correct. Well, yes. What what really happened is that in 1960, when uh, President uh, Kennedy was nominated in Los Angeles. I had, uh, through a family contact, the opportunity to work for CBS in their anchor booth. And I clicked, I used to clip the uh, teletype machine and take the stories into the studio where there was uh, Eric Semeride, Edward R. Murrow, Walter Cronkite, Douglas Edwards. And I, I would put the copy into a the producer's uh, basket there, and being in and around that whole process, the, the news gathering process, the convention itself, uh, Kennedy coming to the convention, I think that infused me with a phenomenal interest in politics. And then that carried over very quickly to USC, where I became involved in the campus-type politics. And tell us more about how you became involved in Republican politics, because I gather your first actual political job was with Sam Yorty, who was a Democrat. Yes. Well, yes, he he ran for mayor of Los Angeles. I was in high school at that time. 
And uh, I, I took bumper stickers door to door, rang the bell and uh, suggested to people that they either put a bumper sticker on the car or at, at the minimum vote for Sam Yorty. Uh, he, he was kind of a character. I think he was at that time when he was running uh, in Los Angeles, he, he was a Democrat, but I believe he had an, it was an independent type uh, campaign. Uh, you would go to work for Richard Nixon for the first time in 1962 in his governor's race against uh, then the incumbent governor, Pat Brown of California. Uh, what did you do in the 1962 race, Mr. Chapin? In the 19, yeah, in the 1962 campaign, uh, I had been assigned to be a field man. I was a senior at USC. I took time off from school and I was in charge of setting up campaign headquarters in the San Fernando Valley section of LA County, Santa Barbara County, and Ventura County. And at that time, uh, we, we would put together these little campaign headquarters, community by community, and get in volunteers that worked the precinct sheets. It was a very grassroots type operation. And my job was to establish these, these little headquarters and to make sure they were staffed and that all of the precinct work was being done. But it was basically in this era, this 1970, uh, 1962 campaign for governor, where I met Richard Nixon for the first time, but I also met many of the players that would continue with him on through to the White House days. Now, most all most people remember of that uh, race, Mr. Chapin, is what uh, uh, Mr. Nixon said at the end of it. Uh, uh, tell us that story and tell us what you think he meant by the famous quote that he said at the Beverly Hilton that day. Yes, it was the Beverly Hilton the morning after the election. I was standing there with my great friend, uh, Mike Gouin. We were in the ballroom and we, there was this kind of a hustle and everybody said Nixon was coming down uh, from his suite up above. And he came down and he went on the stage and that's when he said, uh, gentlemen, you're not going to have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore because this is my last press conference. And uh, as a result of that, uh, I remember Howard K. Smith, who was on ABC at the time, uh, a few days later had a major show called The Political Obituary of Richard Nixon. And at that point, everybody thought Richard Nixon was finished. Uh, as for me, I, I got in my car that morning and I drove around Los Angeles literally all day. I drove around just sobbing. I, I, I was a young man. I had worked my heart out. I had been up all night. I, I, I really didn't think he would lose. I, I, I believed in him and thought he was going to win. And, I may have been one of the only people in, in Los Angeles that thought he was going to win, but that's where, where my head was. And looking back on that moment now, given what you know about Nixon, what do you think he was really feeling? What do you think? Was he just angry at the press? Was he feeling sorry for himself? What do you make of that particular moment? Um, yes, that's, that's a great question. That's a great question, Michael. And I address that in The President's Man. Uh, in, in my book, I, I believe that there was a real clue there that morning, uh, a kind of a psychological clue, if you will. He he let his hair down. He he 
he talked about how he had been vilified by the media and so forth. And I think uh, psychologically, he thought his career was probably over at that point. And uh, he, he was letting it be known that uh, he did not feel that he had been treated properly, uh, at least I would say objectively by the media and had been uh, characterized as someone other than who he was. And that's why he reacted the way he did. And I, I, I believe that that was a clue to what we find later on uh, when he's in the presidency. And yet just six or six years later, he's running hard again uh, in 1968. Uh, both parties have fairly large internal splits between different factions, the country is a mess. Um, Nixon wins the presidential race in 68 with 43 or 44% of the vote. Uh, what was your role in that campaign? In 19, well, uh, very quickly here, I, I, I helped him out at the Goldwater Convention in 64. And then in 1966, I had moved from S Southern California to New York and I worked as a field man. I also, uh, when I got to New York, I called Rosemary Woods, his secretary, and I volunteered. And I would go down in the evening after my work at J. Walter Thompson, the advertising agency, and I would answer correspondence. And uh, it, as I detail in the book, The President's Man, uh, one of the important parts of that going down and working and answering correspondence was that the lady that was teaching me how to answer these letters was Mrs. Nixon herself. And she really got to know me. She got to know about my wife, Susie, and our children. And uh, out of that, I, I believe, became the roots of, of trust. I believe she passed on to uh, Mr. Nixon that this young man uh, was working hard and was somebody he should consider uh, as perhaps his personal aid. And that's what happened. It, after the 1966 election, I was invited by him to come down to the office and did so. And he interviewed me very briefly, uh, but he interviewed me and offered me a job to become his personal aide, which I did throughout the 1967 period and into 1968 and all through that election and until we walked into the White House on uh, the 20th of January, January 1969. Uh, as you know, you did travel with him. You were in the White House, his appointment secretary, among other roles. And you wrote in the book that um, as you got physically closer to him in the White House, in the West Wing, and you became to the, got to the point where you were in, literally in the office next door, he nonetheless remained somewhat elusive from you. You wrote, I believe, that he, had, he cultivated what you called a mystique, uh, a magic of mystique, almost a mystery. How, how come, looking back on that, what, what was that about, do you think, now, um, with some benefits of hindsight? Yes, well, uh, first of all, we're talking about 50 years ago. And, yeah. and, the way, and, and relationships that people had. Uh, first, I, I was a personal aide and a member of his staff. I was not his buddy, buddy, or friend. I, I knew my role and I carried out my role. So 
this was never once did I consider myself as Nixon's buddy or friend or top advisor or anything like that. So, so the, the, my position was one of, uh, for lack of a better word, servitude, uh, an assistant. And I, I was able, because of the length of time that I had been around him, I intuitively knew uh, what it is that he liked or disliked or wanted to do and so forth. And that became, as I mentioned to someone the other day, that, re that really became my, my credential. I, I knew him. And my, my immediate boss, Bob Haldeman, who was the chief of staff, uh, who had been around Nixon for a significant period of time himself, uh, helped train me in this role. And then the president himself, uh, through the years that I worked for him, would let me know what his likes and his dislikes were. And so I, I, I was given basically a gift of, of understanding him. And that, that became the thing that served me so well during this period. And I think it's also what adds so much uh, insight and meat and material to the president's man, the book. You, you said at the top that you felt that he was misunderstood. Tell us why you think he was misunderstood. Well, I, I think he was misunderstood in large part, Michael, because of the uh, interpretation of him. I mean, obviously, Watergate is huge uh, in the interpretation of Richard Nixon. In fact, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, is that is to balance it. I, I remember the book by Tom Wicker, the great uh, New York Times uh, writer, who said, you know, Nixon's greatest accomplishments may have been in his domestic policy. Well, if you went out and asked 10 people on the street about Nixon's accomplishments in domestic policy, you wouldn't find one person probably that could tell you what they were. And, and, and that's because all of the focus on Richard Nixon and his reputation and what he was about is on either one of two things, the opening of China or Watergate. And, the, and, and, and you have a man here that served the nation as a public servant for over a half a century. He was, he, he was brilliant. He was a strategist. He, 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 he did great things for the country. He, he was a partisan who was, who was a bipartisan. And by that, I mean Richard Nixon, when he, the first week in office, he gave us instructions that every week, every week, he wanted to have the bipartisan leadership of the Congress into the Oval Office to discuss issues and, and what they would do on legislation. You know, today, in today's environment that we have in Washington, it's national news if the bipartisan leaderships come down and meet with the president and the cabinet room. With Nixon, it was on the schedule every week. He knew these men. He liked these men. Were they, were they opponents? Yes. Did they have differences? Yes. But they were able to talk to one another. And Nixon was superb at this. It was, it was one of his great calling cards. Um, you know, William Sapphire, another, uh, uh, he was a speechwriter to Richard Nixon. 
um, once described him as a, I think, a seven-layer cake uh, that you could you could kind of cut with your fork down in three three or four layers and and sort of understand what was going on, but you could never get to layers five, six, and seven. Do you agree with with that assessment? Does, does that sound right to you? And if so, or if not, tell us why. Well, first of all, uh, Bill Safar was a great friend of mine. And I would never disagree with Bill on anything. And I think he's right. Uh, Richard Nixon had these various layers. And uh, uh, many people do, uh, particularly people in public life. Uh, the question is, what, what were those layers? And uh, Nixon, Nixon I, I would identify two or three of the important ones. One is his strategic thinking. Uh, an, a, another layer would be his, his concern to be a president that was representative of and looked out for all people, all Americans. Another layer would be his Quakerism. This is a man that did not want, did not believe in war. This is a man that wanted peace. Uh, his, his privacy, he was a very private man. That's another, another layer. One that we would all probably identify was his, his layer of mistrust because so often he was cast as the opposition. This is, this is a man who carried the political baggage for uh, General Eisenhower when Eisenhower was the president. Here's a man that went after Alger Hiss, uh, the communist. Nixon was very anti-communist. So, so some of these layers were controversial and uh, were, were really not liked by many people. So, so there were many layers to that cake that Bill Sapphire was trying to define. And uh, I, I, I wish Bill, I don't know that Bill specifically said, here are what those layers are, but I've tried to give you a few here today. Now that's helpful, you know, and you're right that there were huge domestic accomplishments uh, during the Nixon era with a uh, a Congress that was still largely democratic, OSHA, the all volunteer military, EPA, um, Title IX, uh, quite a few. How, what do you think made Nixon so confident, confident uh, in his belief and ability, and yet, as you once said, uh, paranoid about his rivals? Uh, he he had both. He was both very sure of what he wanted to do, but also uh, quite fearful of those who would oppose him. Um, and did that, in your view, uh, take a toll? Uh, yes, but I, I don't know that I would use the word fearful. I would sure use the word apprehensive and on guard. Uh, and I say, if I, I, I would have to see the, specific passage on on how I use paranoid, but but even paranoids, as the joke goes, sometimes have the right to be paranoid. I mean, uh, he, he was under attack constantly. And and the, the liberal media and the liberal elite were constantly after him. And uh, when when I when I say liberal elite where I talk Ivy League, I'm not talking about some young man or woman that's going to Princeton or Yale or Harvard or something like that. I'm talking about attitude, an attitude of superiority. 
And Nixon hated that. Nixon, Nixon, Nixon obviously, he liked the, the, the brain power of Ivy League people. I mean, he had Dr. Henry Kissinger. He had Patrick Moynihan. He had James Baker. He had George Shultz. He had people that had come out of the Ivy League community. The, the issue with Nixon was how do they think and how and, and then and then how to what degree they would give him leeway in terms of understanding his leadership style versus thinking the, the arrogance that only they knew what was right or knew what was wrong. And I try to make that clear in the president's man that there, there's a hell of a difference here. You know, the, I I wasn't going to ask you this till later, but that theme you just uh, hit on there, particularly with respect to Ivy Leagues and elites, is, a, is an enduring one and continues in our own politics today, a half century later. Um, the Republican Party has become more populist, uh, more working class, more anti-government. What do you think uh, Richard Nixon would think uh, or would make of today's Republican Party? Well, um, these parties... Change and go back and forth. I mean, do you remember the Republican Party, where, where, good God, the the conservatives were way over on one side and the liberals on the other, and they could never get together. And you know, it's like AOC versus uh, the more conservative Democrats. I mean, it's kind of like this thing swings back and forth, this pendulum. And uh, I I think that President Nixon who was a master at understanding this, would say the pendulum is swinging. Just, you know, the, the, great, the great thing that works is time. And that time is going to help us sort out some of these national priorities. I, I would venture out on this one little limb here and say that in terms of a lot of the disputes going on, uh, Nixon would say, you know, why are the kids in the sandbox throwing sand at each other? We have issues of consequence. We have national issues, foreign policy issues that need to be decided. And yet we waste our time day after day after day off on these sidebar issues. Uh, and it's time that America got focused, that we have solid strategic thinking, and, and he would bring together the best minds he could and start solving those problems. And uh, I, 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 when I'm talking to others, I always make the point that, you know, sometimes at five at night or 530, he, he would have Dick Russell, uh, a Democratic senator, or Stennis, a Democratic senator, or uh, any, any number of different people that he had known as he worked in Congress to the White House, they would sit there in the Oval Office and have a, a cocktail and, and talk things over. It was the mentality that existed back in that period is something that needs to be reestablished now. And, and it's not impossible to do. Yeah, back to the 72 campaign really briefly, and we don't have a lot of time left. Nixon would win that race, of course, in a landslide. Um, but he did go to unusual and in some ways illegal uh, links to secure that reelection. Um, your own role in it uh, resulted in you going to prison for nine months. Looking back, would you uh, have done it differently, said something differently, 
Any regrets about that period? <laughs> well, looking back, I, I definitely would not have hired Don Segretti, but, but the Segretti affair uh, was really not part of Watergate. I, I make that point in my book. It, it's really separate from what, what we know as Watergate. It's more of the pranksterism, dirty trick side of things. And obviously, I wouldn't go back and do that now if, I, if that were possible. But I will say this, and I, I make the point in The President's Man, the, the rewards that I had the, as a young man to witness and to work with a man of the brilliance and uh, the uh, interest in public service that Richard Nixon represented was priceless, priceless. And even though I paid a very stiff price and I know that, you know, I was, I'm on the wrong side of the ledger when it comes to uh, evaluating all about Watergate. But when I evaluate my life working for Richard Nixon, it, it, it's nothing but a net plus. And, and, and he was a great man. And I was very honored to serve him. Mr. Chapin, uh, thank you for your time and for sharing your uh, memories and recollections of the 37th president with us. Uh, and congratulations on your new book. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Michael. And uh, congratulations on that great book you wrote, too. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.